0: So...
1: 12. Today, we're going to talk with Paul Theobald from Pierce County, Nebraska, about rural issues and the Democratic Party. I'm April, and I'm here with Melody and Stephanie. Let's get started. How you doing, ladies? Great. How are you? I'm great. I'm having a good holiday weekend. There's been some sunshine that really helps.
0: (laughs) Well, I have to give you a puppy update. Uh, yeah. we talked about last week i had the new puppy and she was basically uh crapping everywhere so <laughs> <laughs> somewhere, <laughs> somewhere between
1: last year and this year we stopped not swearing on the pot <laughs> oh was that was that a rule no oh. i'm the one i think you broke the rule i'm just saying we just like lost all uh Decorum. It's okay.
0: Crap isn't that bad anyway, right? (laughs) No, 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 no. I mean, I might, I might say the f word. I can't, I can't make promises about that. Yeah. But the puppy, I will say, the puppy is crapping less, and (laughs) she is now adjusting to the family, and she is starting to do the things we're expecting her to do, and it's just going really well. And she, I mean, she was the perfect addition to the quarantine family because now the children when they're bored they just go to the puppy who is also wanting to do something and play and she wants to run around outside and she wants to chase them and she wants to fetch things retrieve things and it's anyway highly recommend puppy if you can (laughs) handle you know crap in your house if you can't handle that get a mature dog don't get a puppy yeah (laughs) so April what's going on at your house um you the last we heard about your garden you had a tree that kept failing in various ways oh, is that still happening no, it, it, it
1: seems okay I, it seems fine my latest thing is I've embraced the old ladiness and I bought one heck of a bird feeder yes <laughs> I got a I got a bird feeder today. I can give you some seed because I went to the bird habitat store Uh and was like, I want a squirrel-proof bird feeder. How much did that cost? I'm not going to answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) Let's say I'm not having to buy much but food these days. So I bought this squirrel-proof bird feeder and a big old hook because I don't have any tree limbs small enough for me. Mm-hmm. and then I was like I want seed that will attract a wide variety of birds but I don't want the squirrels to like it necessarily anyways so I I was like and it's big so I was like I don't know how much does this one hold so anyway I bought a 20 pound bag of bird seed it is way too much mm-hmm. of bird seed so you got some coming your way Stephanie.
2: yay yeah no that was my May I've been trying to do something each month of quarantine that adds something fun to the backyard. and yeah. that was the thing this yeah. May.
1: Stephanie, Stephanie tell them about the you- big thing you bought for your backyard. Um.
2: I well, big. I got a it's a smallish, yeah. bigish pool, so <laughs> my kid has something to do this summer. So I'm very excited about it. Very, very excited.
0: Well, Stephanie, I had a question for you. Are you still on the board of a like local farming nonprofit?
2: Um, I'm serving my sixth year on the board at Community Crops, and um, they have been able to help get plants in lots of people's backyards uh, for their gardens this okay. summer.
1: Is it well, a statewide I, organization or is it local?
2: Nope it's it's just here in Lincoln. So uh-huh. they do uh, community they do outreach at the schools, and they do community gardens all across the city and then um, education and cooking classes and preservation classes, things like Are
0: there similar little like little municipal level nonprofits doing that stuff around the state that you know of?
2: There, there are several in Omaha and I'm assuming there are some in some of the other communities i think brian whitecalf works with one in grand island nebraska but i can't remember the name off the top of my head but there are several that are doing fantastic things up in omaha too
0: you know what we should do at seeing red is we should put together a page of all of the community garden groups around the state so people Mm -hmm. can easily find them yeah because that's the whole that's the hot thing this year is community gardens yeah i'm loving it
2: um I love it. And one thing that's really neat is uh, Community Crops has a couple of gardens that they um, organize around communities of immigrant families so that they can garden in some of the ways that they gardened in their home countries that might be different than how we cultivate crops here. And so that's been really neat to watch and support.
0: Well, let's, April, will you introduce our guest? Because I think he knows about gardens too. And I want to ask him about his garden while we're Definitely on
1: topic. agriculture.
0: Uh, today we have
1: Paul Seabald out from Pierce County, Nebraska. Not out from, this is all via Zoom of course. Hi Paul, how are you? I'm
3: doing well April, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. So we uh, heard that you've been an awesome force in the Democratic Party out in some rural areas. I know you ran for office uh, during the last major election. And maybe you could tell us just a tiny bit about that and then tell us about what you're running for now.
2: And your garden. Tell us about your your garden. garden. Let's (laughs) start start by telling us about the garden.
0: (laughs) We've got some bossy ladies. And you know what I want to say? I think. Correct me if I'm wrong ladies, but I think Paul, I believe you are the first man to ever come on the pod.
3: <gasps> wow. Yes. Oh. Yes. So
0: it's quite the honor yes. that we were bestowing on
3: you. It's a I good choice. Taught. I appreciate it very so much more now that's that's wonderful. <laughs> we uh, garden pretty big and we have several. we have a, a garden for our vine crops pumpkins, cucumbers, squash, and zucchini, because it's, that stuff spreads, you know, so we have mm-hmm. just one garden donated to that, and part of the reason we do a lot of that is that we use, well, like, my wife cans pickles, and, and, and we eat a lot of uh, zucchini and, and whatnot, but uh, it supplements and, and cuts down the bill for hog feed, because we also raise mm-hmm. hogs, not large scale by any stretch. These are antibiotic-free animals that uh, we pasture raise. They're also a very rare breed. uh, We're trying to keep alive, you might say. It's called a guinea hog, and Thomas Jefferson made reference to guinea hogs in his farm books. So it's a very old breed, and it's escaped all modern genetics, so it's much smaller. So it's easier to work with the animals so we have a kind of a, our garden sort of augment, um, our small scale livestock operations as well. Hey, we hey have, Paul. Yeah.
2: I don't, mean, I don't mean to interrupt you, but would you please tell us the name of your pigs, please?
3: <laughs> <laughs> okay. The, the boar, what we have on hand right now, the boar is, um, Pippin and the, uh, two sows are Galadriel and Arwen. And if you're Tolkien, Fans at all, Lord of the Rings. You, you recognize those names from Did that.
0: You say the boar was named Pippin, like the Broadway musical Pippin.
3: No, like the Hobbit Pippin. Yeah. <laughs>
0: oh, oh! I Come see. Come on, I Melody. Yeah. I really love the Broadway musical Pippin.
2: <laughs> it can <laughs> be, it be too meaning, too meaning.
3: But we also have goats and we, so we have a kid crop. We sell our pig litters. Uh, we sell them generally as feeders, but we sell some, feed some out to sell to people who want you know, a whole hog. And with the goats, once we have the kids, once we wean them, we sell the kid crop and then, then I'll milk for a while. And the excess milk goes to the hogs, but my wife makes goat cheese. And I don't do it for very long, a couple months at the most, and then we dry them up. But it's, it's enough for her to experiment with things like goat milk soap, and, uh, and we both like goat cheese. And then, you know, the, the usual in the garden is tomatoes, peppers, green beans, and the onions, and potatoes, and all of that in a, in a large garden. We also have a, an asparagus patch that's really quite large. We have more okay. asparagus than we know what to do with. And then we have chickens, of course, and eggs. We feed the excess eggs to the hogs as well. We try to create a kind of a, a balanced system. Yeah. We've got a hay field uh, on our place that's just large enough, for basically, for the livestock needs that we have. We also do what we can to produce as much of our own power as we can. Uh, We have a large bank of of solar panels to produce as much electricity as we possibly can. And it's maybe six, seven months out of the year. It takes care of most of our power needs. Um, In the winter, it's when the days are shorter and there's more demand. We don't fulfill our needs with those solar panels, but it helps and cuts down the burden a little bit. So we are retired now, and and our life plan at this point was to grow as much of our own food and to supply as much of our own energy as we possibly can. And that's that's basically what we're doing. But our world kind of got to segue, and, and you guys just jump in, stop me, just like Stephanie did and <laughs> whenever. But to segue to the to the political thing, you know, we were living the life we dreamed of while we were working, and then this thing this 2016 election just threw everything off the rails i mean it was uh, it was horrible in so many ways and it was it was difficult to function uh, i think and you you all probably remember as well you just knew that this was going to be terrible it was going to be mm-hmm. terrible for women it was going to be terrible for agriculture it was going to be terrible for the environment it's going to be terrible for our climate circumstances. And it's been all that was promised. I mean, it's, and more, it's, uh, it's worse. But in that 2016 election, when I went in to vote, um, there was no, (laughs) nobody to vote for in the third uh, congressional district, which was also, you know, just a real heartache, you know. Um,
0: Just, I want to interrupt you just a second for our listeners. So in Nebraska, there are Every state gets congressional representatives based on population in Congress and so we have three in our state and uh, congressional district one is Lincoln and some counties surrounding it. Congressional number two is Omaha and some counties surrounding it and congressional district number three is the rest of Nebraska. So it's very, very large, but those are low population areas mm-hmm. by it kind of looks like that so
2: predominantly rural
0: and predominantly so you're saying that as
1: a democrat there was no one for you to align with because the current republican adrian smith was the only choice no one ran against him that year
3: right no one ran against him or has for years uh, yeah it's happened before um and he let's face it i mean he's he's a fairly incompetent congressman i mean he hasn't done anything
1: hasn't produced much
3: no And in my mind, he's kind of a walking example of how little the Republican Party cares about ordinary Americans, rural Americans, you know, to allow us to have virtually no no representation because we got this guy who just votes the way he's told in in office. So at any rate, you know, to kind of make a longer story short, I started doing everything I could to recruit a candidate for CD3 because I didn't want 2018 to be like 2016 where nobody challenged him. So I was able to, uh, or I had a conversation with with Frank Lemire. Uh, I was at a public service commission meeting on the Keystone Pipeline, which would run about 22 miles from here as the crow flies. Uh, So we're not right in the path of the pipeline, but it's, Darndest thing about water it doesn't really stay in one place so it scares the heck out of us and we obviously Mm -hmm. are opposed to it as is anybody I think who really cares about this state and our greatest natural resource but at any rate I was asking Frank about who's going to run in 2018 and he just kept saying Paul you need to run you need to run (laughs) and of course that was uh, I was flattered and my wife got a good laugh out of it when I told her but um, for months after that, I, I didn't want to do it. I didn't see myself as a politician, but I, I couldn't shake the the feeling that um, you know, somebody's got to do it. So I made the decision probably in October. I think the candidates, the other two candidates, Cara in uh, District 2 and, and at that time, Jessica McClure in District 1, they they had been running for you know, four or five months, maybe six months before I finally uh, decided I would go ahead and, and join them and run in CD3. So it was it was a life changing experience. I met Democrats all over the state and became increasingly involved in the Democratic Party as a result. And obviously didn't fare well in the election. But you know, we, we sort of knew going in that it was I mean, the odds were extremely long. Um, it's considered the most republican district outside of the south congressional Dang,
2: i didn't know that yeah yeah it's one of the reddest we have some of the reddest counties in the country and back when the aca was a little more functional than it is now it was also some of the lar- like um the largest use of the aca in the country
3: right wow. which was you know i <laughs> Which is ironic, you know, because every everywhere you went, people say, Oh, damn, ACA, you know, this Obamacare, it's terrible. But yet per capita the Congressional District Three is one of the heaviest users because it's mm-hmm. so heavily farm uh, and self employed. Uh, right. that uh they, they have they absolutely need it. But that's a that's an interesting cultural dynamic that we could we could get into at some point.
0: What do you think was, so you knew you went into the race in 2018 and you knew probably you weren't going to win. Odds were against you and ultimately you did not win. Why did you go into the race and did you get what you were hoping to get out of that experience?
3: Well, I guess the first question was, I was just a part of this blue wave phenomenon that that swept the country it was a wake-up call to everybody i think that our democracy could fall so far as as to elect uh, a completely disgusting and despicable person so i ran to be basically part of a house of representatives that would serve as a check on the president and ultimately i didn't win but democrats won Mm -hmm. They took the House, and that has saved us in in so many ways. You know, it's it's hard to say what would have happened had they kept the House, uh, you know, in addition to the Senate and the presidency. The first two years were bad enough. But so it, it really was, I've got to do something. No one's doing this particular thing. So why don't I step up and do it? And actually my wife and I ran into uh, or bumped into I think my my wife actually heard it and it turns out it's fairly famous but as I said one time it eluded us for 62 years it's a quote by an Englishman that we are the people we've been waiting for or something to that effect.
1: I have that on a t-shirt. We are yeah. the ones we've been waiting for. <laughs>
3: yeah. It's my so, favorite. Like I said I, we had never heard that before but but when my wife mentioned it, you know, that was that sort of solidified the deal. I said, "Okay, I'm going to do this, and I drove down to Lincoln and uh, I met with the executive director of the Democratic Party. I said I'm interested in running, and I think they probably did a little bit of vetting, and they were okay with me running. I think the word is thrilled, Paul. <laughs>
2: the word that you are looking for. Just want to be clear, um, and I do mm-hmm. want I do want to say one thing because I got. The pleasure of uh, working with Paul and watching how he ran his race and how he interacted with people. And Paul connected with Democrats and independents across the state. And Paul also really supported other candidates. He was, sometimes there are races that we can't win. And part of the purpose of people running. There might be a couple of races in Nebraska right now you can think of where we have no chance, but those candidates are there to build the bench and support and lift up other candidates that are running. And so Paul did a really fantastic job of that. And so
3: that was really neat to watch. You're right. And, and I, in fact, the very last weekend before the election, I was very tempted to go down to uh, Omaha and, and knock doors for Kara, for but I was running my own race. And so I went to some small towns and did that. But it was kind of a, a bonding experience with the other Democratic candidates, some more than others, obviously. Uh, but I became very close to, uh, to Spencer Danner, to Jessica, got to know, um, you know, you know unicameral uh, uh, representatives or unicameral senators. And uh, it, was, it was really quite literally a life-changing experience for me. I was an academic, uh, a teacher, a professor, and uh, really kind of a sequestered life. Early on, you know, when we were young, uh, my wife and I, I mean, we had, we both sort of, I won't say we come by it naturally because we both have Republican siblings, but my father, for a brief period, was president of the Rural Mail Carriers Association, basically the Rural Mail Carriers Union in uh, Minnesota. And that role actually earned him uh, and my mother uh, two tickets to Truman's inaugural ball, which we sort of, we have family photos of of them there. It's really kind of cool.
1: My grandmother has an invitation. I've seen it to Nixon's inauguration. Uh,
2: (laughs) I was like, what?
1: (laughs) No, she doesn't say poor grandma. I say
0: (laughs) poor grandma. (laughs) Sorry, I
3: just had to throw that in there.
0: Paul, what was your... What was your academic background? What were your disciplines?
3: Well, I I was a, I started out uh, teaching social studies in high school, history. I was a history major. Um, Woo, educators! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well done, I, April. Well done. <laughs> I focused. Actually, I continued to focus on educational history in. Uh, in my doctoral program and that proved to be really kind of interesting you know connected to some some of the issues related to schooling that we might want to talk about but i also had an affinity obviously for rural schools and and preserving them
2: hey hey, paul
3: yeah what's the name of your book that you wrote uh well there's
2: <laughs> so, okay the one i have a copy of okay
3: <laughs> but um the one that you have a copy of is called education now how rethinking America's past can change its future and it's actually mm. the book is a is sort of a, a recasting of America's political economic and educational theory so it's much bigger than just you know how, how do we do public schooling it's uh, it kind of examines the underlying assumptions related to why we do politics the way we do why we do
2: mm-hmm.
3: why we do and why we do education the way we do so that was That was the intellectual task related to to that book. and I I really like it
2: because it has
3: a lot of focus on what's
2: going on in our rural rural America.
3: Yeah, it it does. It actually was in that book where I, I first made the argument that much like our founding generation needed to separate church and state, not just for reasons of raw power, but for reasons of cultural messaging. The church controlled the news, controlled the stories that people heard. And you weren't going to uh, hear positive uh, stories about doing away with the feudal system, doing away with uh, intergenerational titles and wealth and all of that. That wasn't going to come from the church because the church was so tightly interlocked with the aristocracy as it was, the second sons or became clergymen and so on. And like I said, they controlled the messaging, which was very, very important piece to separating church and state. What we need to do now, of course, or I made the argument in the book that it's just as important for contemporary Americans to orchestrate a separation of corporation and state because corporations control the messaging. And that's a pivotal piece (laughs) To uh, you know, hindering any kind of democratic advancement
2: You don't say. <laughs> God, I love hearing you say this. That's why I had to
3: clap. <laughs>
1: um,
2: so, I always, I always said Paul speaks my soul a little bit. So, Paul, I
0: feel like we could do a three-hour episode just of. I just want to like hear you lecture, basically. <laughs> oh, no. um, I will say, in you know, for separating church and state, while. Maybe we have some elements in our structure that are intended to do that. Right here in Nebraska, we know that the Catholic Church is participating in an outsized role in our state government. And in fact, when Governor Ricketts held a press conference to celebrate his Lie to Women bill, enshrining in law medical procedures that can kill women, uh, Seeing Red tried to get into the press conference. We were not allowed in. Uh, this we Facebook live the whole event. We were not allowed in, and the Catholic Church was there, and they were live streaming the event. So, so those are not separate. <laughs> I will say,
3: in the main, I'm very disappointed with the Catholic hierarchy. They've had they've shown you know no proclivity to keep focus on on uh, social and economic justice and. Back in 1987, the bishops in this country wrote a powerful piece on, on just that topic, but it's been almost silenced since 1987, and that's that's very disappointing. Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, I think the Catholic Church is a really good comparison to, I don't want to say it quite like that, but there's really great things happening in the Catholic Church. We know that like, really amazing nuns are... You know, they're the first people to be handing out condoms in the street, Mm -hmm. even though the Catholic Church as an institution and a bureaucracy says that condoms are a sin and they damn you to hell. There definitely is a difference between what's happening at the top and what's happening at the bottom, you know, but we also know at the bottom there have been really horrible tragedies against children and sexual assaults and rapes, which... At the bottom was covered up and has was covered up all the way to the top including right here in Nebraska So, you know, the Catholic Church is definitely a mixed bag and they have no place in our state house. right? So Paul, yeah, you have this incredible Life history you joined the blue wave in 2018 and then now you are looking at Getting involved at the state level of the Democratic Party and I want to talk about that for us next, but I also just want to say real quick, for people who don't know, the, the way that political parties are structured, and this is true of Republicans and Democrats and probably libertarians, I guess, um, is that there are local level party groups, and they are often running kind of independently, and then there are these broader Like state level political party groups, and then there are federal political party group happening. So you're looking at going into the state level political party. Can you talk about that?
3: Sure. I would just say too that uh, I, I chair the Pierce County Democrats as well. So at the local participating here at the local level. It, they're hard to find in Pierce County. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but no. we're doing everything we can. So, yes, I'm looking to join the leadership ranks of the state Democratic Party. And specifically, I'm running for the first associate chair position, which is a bit of a mouthful because the, the position is really just simply the vice chair position. Like what in, does the in-
1: vice chair do? I think a lot of us don't know the inner workings or, you know, Traditionally, what have they done, and also your take on what do you want to do?
3: Yeah, I, I think it's really quite flexible, and and that a lot of it depends on the strengths that the various leadership members bring. There's a there's a second associate chair, there's a committee man, there's a committee woman, and the chair obviously, and the chair of county chairs. So it's a member. I mean the. The first associate chair or the vice chair is, well, obviously, if, if something were to happen to the chair that, and a decision needed to be made, the vice chair would step in to make the decision. But it's basically being a team member on an executive team to try to decide how best to advance the goals of the Democratic Party in the state of Nebraska. In terms of what I would see myself doing and contributing in that role would be candidate recruitment and a kind of a grooming process as well, identifying candidates young and connecting with them and uh, encouraging them to run for local races and so on. But candidate recruitment is really, uh, uh, I think, an important one and kind of connected to that is being someone who can really, I, I mean, since I'm retired, I have the freedom to crisscross the state to go to the counties where they're trying to build county parties and be a help with that and be uh, a source of advice and, you know, a, 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 an ear to listen uh, with county, for county chairs who struggle. Um, because I know what it's like to, to try to run a county party in a county that's so predominantly red. It's so difficult to get Democrats to actually come out and um, show themselves, so to speak. Yeah. So there's that. The other uh, fundraising is a huge piece. As an academic, uh, you know I have a long history of um, grant writing, successful grant writing. So there's a and and, and just writing skills um, that that could help with uh, various kinds of marketing endeavors and so on. Um, I think that the skills that I've developed over my career would would be beneficial to the state Democratic Party, and I, I want to make a difference. Um, you know, I, I I worry about, we've got grandkids, you know, and it's it's hard enough just to think about your kids succeeding in, in the way the world is moving, the directions it's going, but the, the, to think about what your grandchildren could be facing mm-hmm. if we don't start, you know, getting serious about um, climate change and a whole host of others. I mean, this mm-hmm. pandemic, um, you know, I, I'm sure you've heard that there's a lot of experts that predict that this kind to of can increase as the earth continues to warm. So human history, we're in for some rocky times and I want to do everything I can to make sure that I've done my part in helping uh, hand off a livable world to, to the next generations. So then it's just a matter of, well, here's an opportunity. The first associate chair position, people can run for that every two years, comes up in 2020. Uh, it seemed like a position that matches my skill set. And the other piece I think that, that works for me is that I've had such a strong rural background. You know, like I said, my father was a rural mail carrier. I've been around farmers my entire life. I do a little farming. I've done a little farming whenever I've had the opportunity over the years, but I've also lived in big cities and I've spent, you know, a good deal of time in urban centers. I've worked with urban schools. I think I'm pr- the kind of person that can move pretty easily into both dimensions of the Nebraska experience, both mm-hmm. here in the rural. Um, so I, it, it seems like my skill set and and uh, the experience I bring were a good fit for this particular position, so I'm giving it a shot, basically.
0: That's awesome!
1: That's awesome. That's, that's I have really a question so pretty- as somebody who's just really dumb. <laughs> we have lots of
0: questions. Pick a number, ladies. I don't know how we pick. <laughs> I wanted to say, I wrote a piece for Seeing Red back when the legislature was in session earlier this year, and the piece was called, Should We Defund Everything But Lincoln and Omaha? And the thesis was, I was really trying to think through why are rural senators fighting night and day to starve the state of any sort of real funding? while we watch rural healthcare, rural post offices, rural schools, rural nursing homes, I mean, they're all just shutting down and they're consolidating to be more efficient, uh, which I think is bad. I think that's bad for individual families. It's bad for individual people. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how, how can the Democratic Party fix that? Because we know the Republican Party, uh, they're all Republicans. Every rural senator, almost exclusively, with a very few exceptions, maybe two exceptions, are Republicans. And mm-hmm. they, are, they work night and day to do harm to their districts. <laughs> What's, go- what's going on there? Like, what, what can the party be doing to fix that? So we always hear the chair. A lot of people know who Jane Kleb is, and she's always talking about building the rural vote. What does that actually mean to you? What does that actually look like?
3: Well, what it means is, to me, is we have to have the conversations with people uh, about the fact that the Democratic Party actually wants to see rural America stop Decades' worth of erosion and reverse it. We want to see the number of farmers and ranchers grow instead of decline. We want to see small Main Street businesses thrive uh, rather than shut their doors. Mm -hmm. These are all things that people out in rural America want, but they harbor these cultural messages about, well, Democrats are all urban and Democrats are all for giving free money away and, you know, to people who don't work. I mean, all this ridiculous stuff. So we have to have conversations about when you vote for a party that doesn't give a damn about you, there are consequences. Your representatives are voting for corporate welfare. Corporate welfare diminishes state revenue. When state Mm -hmm. revenue is diminished, There's pressure on property taxes to go up. We already have the second highest property taxes in the country. And the state that has the highest is California, where they grow mega cash crops like avocados and almonds and, and grapes on these small plots of land, and the valuation is necessarily higher there. So you might say, we are, you know, for regular agriculture, we are the highest state. I mean, our farmers pay the most in taxes. So there's, you know, uh, so there's that piece. The the other piece, I mean, we could go, you know, down the list. The fact that we don't uh, enforce antitrust legislation. We allow these huge mega agribusiness corporations to buy up the competition so they own the market, they can charge as much as they possibly can. And that tends to end up with farmer consolidation. Farmer consolidation leads to school consolidation. And then nursing homes disappear, hospitals disappear. And it's it's a death spiral, really. Republican policy puts rural America into a death spiral. It treats rural people as acceptable collateral damage for the pursuit of corporate profit. And uh, the Democratic Party needs to be able to explain this to people who are watching Fox News, quote unquote, yeah. uh, every mm-hmm. day. And again, this is a, a role I can play because I've been around farmers all of my life. So it's, you know, it, it's a piece of making this run for the first associate chair position.
0: I mean, I really feel that. I was reading an Omaha World Herald piece about some things that OPS is doing, the public school system, and the superintendent just casually mentioned that they are at almost 80% free and reduced lunch. I took a look at the statewide numbers. Almost every county is at 50% or higher in our state. It, there is real money being made in this state, big, giant, billionaire, TD Ameritrade, Ricketts level wealth being made in this state. And it is not passing down to the everyday person, the everyday family. We're not getting our fair share of our labor.
2: Is there no trickling happening in Nebraska? Is that what I'm getting?
0: <laughs> Nowhere.
2: It's not happening anywhere. That's right. It's like that shit's imaginary. I won't even call it crap, okay? Right on. Call it out,
0: (laughs) Melody. Are you okay? (laughs) I'm just, I'm just thinking about you know trickling and the puppy and the (laughs) field in my house. I don't know. It all circles back. (laughs) This kind of reminds me of a
1: book. Actually, I just found on my shelf. I think I made Melody read it a couple years ago. It's called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion by Jonathan, mm-hmm. I think it's height. Yep. And he talks about, you know, there's like kind of six foundations of morals. I might be messing this up a little bit because I'm looking at like my notes that I wrote in it because I'm a nerd like that. Um, and <laughs> for people who identify themselves as liberal their like top three foundations are like the balance of care and harm that's number one not in any order necessarily the second one would be the balance of liberty versus oppression and the third is like the fairness and cheating kind of balance conservatives tend to fall more on the loyalty and betrayal Mm -hmm. um, which i think comes a lot into Rural America, like this loyalty in my family was this. This is what we are. This identity is a lot of loyalness.
0: I mean, we're Authority. seeing that with the president and the governor, he is funding the governor, funds the opponents of people who are not loyal to him in the legislature, even though mm-hmm. they are constitutionally mandated to be a check on his gubernatorial power. He right. punishes them with right. uh, funding opponents, and the tr- president just fires his political opponents
1: then the other two were conservatives also tend to weigh more on the authorities um subversion what do you call the layout like from high Contin-
3: to low i don't know continuum
1: continuum thank you and the sanctity and degradation continuum so that was really interesting and another thing i really i read this, this- book cuz i was trying to understand people different than me and one thing that was really interesting was that I wrote down, the intuitions come first and your strategic reasoning comes second. And he talked about like a writer on an elephant and that the writer is not in charge of the elephant, right? The elephant does what it wants. That's your intuition. Your intuition does what it wants. And the writer has to work really hard. (laughs) That strategic reasoning has to know like, how do I work with that intuition? Does Mm -hmm. that make sense? Yeah, Yeah. and that we're designed for groupish righteousness and that that is a big reason why we're so divided. It was just fascinating. We'll put this in the show notes too.
3: It's a similar analysis to, uh, there's an economist by the name of Richard Thaler and about a half a dozen years ago, he won the Nobel Prize because he was basically making a very similar argument that for forever, the discipline of economics has considered human beings to be sort of self-interest calculators. You know, I'm going to buy this product because it's cheaper, and you know, I'm going to. Uh, um, and, and they, they're always thinking about their own well-being and how it's advanced from in economic terms. But what he's demonstrated was that that isn't isn't the case at all. That uh, what's far more important to human beings is social acceptance, their social circle, and all of that. And they will, I mean, it's like earlier when we were talking about the fact that the third congressional district is one of the heaviest users of the ACA, and yet all across the third district, people will call it uh, the devil's own doing, Um, yet they're using it. But they talk that way because that's acceptable talk in their social circles, and being accepted by others is more important to them than their own economic self-interest. And so that was really kind of path-breaking, and it, and it shoved the whole discipline of economics off, off of its uh, rails just a little bit. And now, now we're getting, I think, a lot more interesting work coming out of out of economics as a result but I was reminded of that April when you were talking about this righteous mind um the the dichotomies there because very similar it was very similar to Thaler's work it seems to me anyway
1: it was fascinating like I mean I like to learn but there's not very many books that I buy because I'm a librarian so like borrowing is sacred (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but mm-hmm. I buy when I'm like, no, I want to understand this and I want to write in it and I want to underline and take notes. And this is one, it's a pretty big book, but it was very readable. Yeah. Well, you had another interesting part I want to say, cause it reminds me of something Melody talked about previously. The author said, our politics will become more civil when we find ways to change procedures for electing politicians and the institutions and environments within which they interact just because we're all sucked into our tribal moral communities, Mm -hmm. And it made me think about Melody who, I don't even think it was on a pod. I think it was pre-pod recording moments when she was like, why do we have to have a, a partisan governor race? Like we could elect somebody who doesn't have to be Republican or Democrat necessarily, who could have better ideas for the state so that we weren't drawn on these tribal moral lines, you know? It was an interesting idea.
3: Well, we, we uh, you know, we don't, we don't have a proportional system. I, I think if we had a proportional representation in the United States, we, we could do, you know, I mean, I, it would be far easier to do that, April. Yeah. With a winner-take-all system that we have, and incidentally, there aren't very many countries left that still have this kind of system.
1: Thank you. I was going to ask that question. You read my mind.
3: Yeah. No, it's, it's the United States, Canada. Can you
1: tell us some, do you know off the top of your head, you're an academic, do you know off the top of your head a few major countries of the world that don't use this proportion, or do, do use a proportional system?
3: Oh, sure. Almost all of, all of Europe, Australia, use a proportional system. And it's because... Like in Nebraska, we're all Democrats in, in Nebraska or all the Democrats in Nebraska are totally unrepresented in the government. Yeah. Tell yeah. me about it.
2: Like <laughs> forty percent of the state, we have five statewide offices in Washington and we get zero.
3: Right. And in a proportional system, that wouldn't be the case. We'd we would, get two. Right. And and that what that does is it forces more compromise in, uh, in Washington in the, in the central government where they've got to build coalitions in order to get things done. Mm-hmm. That is the
1: exact opposite narrative that we're told. We're told that if we went proportional, then that poor rural people wouldn't get anything they need or want. Well, That's not what I you're mean, saying. I think the
0: actual facts are they're already not getting anything they need or want. Right? We're, we're shutting it fact. all down because there's no money and, uh, and propaganda is
2: a funny thing
0: and yeah, i just want to
2: say for the record
1: like paul said i'm an urban democrat in nebraska i don't want those small town businesses to close i want no. you to to go to a grocery store in your town mm. i want you to be able to have a post office these seem like i want you to have broadband internet these are like basic things that broadband every for have. everyone and you shouldn't have to move from your community to have them that's ridiculous. or to go to
2: school. Right. You know? Like I would
1: I'm willing to pay money for that. <laughs> um I like visiting thing. your town. I like that you have your own culture. I like mm-hmm. that you have your own school. Like net, tight-knit communities are great. Even in Lincoln, my children are in a fairly small school and I love it.
2: One thing that I really appreciate you about you, Paul, is that you really seem to be thoughtful about what you want to bring to the table. And I think that's really important because in Nebraska, the Democrats get four voices to the national party, to the DNC. And I think that you have an important voice that I don't feel like they have a lot of at the DNC. Um, I'm guessing they probably have a lot of upper-class white male voices. And granted, you're you know, white and male, Paul, we won't hold it against you, but you know, uh, you seem to get it and actually care about other people and, and care about rural America, which I just feel like we need more of that. We need more of that on the national stage to make sure that we can actually reach out and connect with uh, voters and get reasonable people elected up and down the ballot.
1: I really hope this is only the beginning of what you do. Like I hope that you don't Uh stop here. Like, (laughs) I hope you'll run again for office sometime because gosh dang it. I don't live out there, but
2: I'd vote for you. Yeah. And so does my seven-year-old. I just never would need everybody to know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You know, I gotta say what you said, Stephanie about sending people like Paul to national meetings. I think that's really, really important. And Anybody who is involved in issue-based work, right? So, you know, I run Nebraskans Against Gun Violence, and I've talked to people in, you know, other issue-type work. And when you go to these national conferences and you're having a conversation about your issue at the national level, it is all coastal people who kind of fit a certain mold. And and it's not even like a race or gender mold. It is it's in coastal mode. <laughs> it's just a coastal yes. thing. And so, you know, I just, I feel like we have an obligation as a red middle of the country type state to send people who actually are not trying to emulate what they're doing in New York. Yep. That doesn't work here, that it doesn't matter what they do in New York here. Nobody cares. We need to be, we are experts in what it's like to live in rural red states and we need to be really proud of that. And we need to not be trying to emulate people who don't face the challenges that we face here. Mm -hmm. We need to be building coalitions with people who do face similar challenges. We need to be reaching out and really coordinating with, well, how are they getting things done in Kentucky? How do they get things done in Nevada? How do they get things done in Idaho? Those are our people, (laughs) New York, California, California. Virginia, you're all lovely, but you're not Nebraska. I've right. given
1: up on Idaho. Sorry. <laughs> well,
2: <laughs> no. No, I'm sure there's, fans. there's some good people in Idaho that we're not giving up Idaho. I
0: have a little bit of family there. I just pulled Idaho out of a hat, but you know, we need we almost people. Moved like, there. We need people like everybody on this podcast right now to be speaking up and bringing a bunch of people behind us. Right. Uh, and raising them up and then who then bring people behind them. And then now we have some real traction.
2: Good, good segue. Melody, real quick, Paul, I want you to tell us, um, I know there've got to be some races you're excited to help support. There's probably lots and lots of them, but can you tell us about uh, two races that you're really excited to help support and help build momentum behind?
3: Uh, Well, sure. I mean, Not to
2: put you on the spot. Sorry. uh,
3: No, no, that's, that's quite all right. I, I, thrilled that we have a chance, I think, to, uh, to take two congressional seats um, in District 1 and District 2. I think that Kate has a real chance of being Fortenberry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kate Bowles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and uh, I, I think Kara will win this time. I, I really do. I, I think that in those two districts in particular, I think there's enough of a Suburban backlash this time to the Trump regime that that's going to weight down both Fortenberry and uh, and Bacon, and I think isn't it just remarkable the way women have been energized since 2018? You know, just been a flood of candidates all across the state, and I think that translates into women voting more than you know some than women that didn't uh, in you know younger women in particular who are trying to build their their careers and their young families and so on didn't pay too much attention in the past, but now they're worried. And yeah,
0: oh, they should be. Well, Cara, she ran in 2018, and so she already built a name for herself. She already built a big pile of data that she's building off of in 2020. So she's, you know, she's got a whole infrastructure going on. In 2018, the candidate in Lincoln was uh, Jessica McClure. She's the first candidate to win the county um, Mm -hmm. since Fortenberry was elected. So Kate Bowles is building on that 2018 campaign. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I have said this before about campaigns, when you go in and you know you're not likely to win, what you're doing the reason you run and the reason you run as hard as you can is because you're building something for the next person to launch onto. Yep. And if we build a little bit further every time, eventually we get there. Yep.
2: We're that's cultivating
0: the soil. Yep. Yeah, that's what it means to build the bench. Oh, you know, you, you don't brought have it back team. to you an just, egg
1: reference. You said course, yeah. it's the soil. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Way to go, Stephanie.
2: Anyway, and I'll just put it out there: Kate and Kara are both fantastic. They are brilliant and strong and inspiring women who are focused on what's best for the people and not just corporations. And I think that that speaks volumes to um, what they're doing in their campaigns and what they can do to help re- represent our state in Washington. So, yeah,
3: and Kate in uh, in District One, it's. I mean, it's not nearly uh, as rural as District Three, but it's more rural mm-hmm. too. So there's a lot, a, a lot larger rural piece to that district. Mm-hmm. And Kate, I think will will do well as a as a kid that grew up on a farm, knows something yep. about farming, and can relate to farmers. So that will help. Oh, uh, she well, has deep roots like, in
2: her rural community too. You know,
0: I mean, Who I else? just want to say, you know, like of course I. think, have to say, I ran against Kate Bowles in 2016.
1: <laughs> uh, for a legislature. Yeah. For a
0: legislature, because I wanted to publicly raise some questions about her record on some issues that were important to me. So, you know, she's not this progressive hero, but she is a good fit for the district and she is incredibly yep. competitive. And what I do know is true about Kate Bowles is if you don't agree with what she's doing, she will sit down and talk to you, and she is moved by data and logic and mm-hmm. facts and expertise and science. <laughs> and that is the Blair. difference between a congressman like you know Jeff Fortenberry and Don Bacon, who cannot be reasoned with. That's the difference.
3: Yep, I agree completely. Yeah, and,
0: and that's I want people
2: who can look at data and information and go forward right, and make the best decisions from there. Anyway, go Kate, go Kara. I'm so freaking excited.
0: Well, Paul, we should probably get wrapped up here. Uh, We don't want to keep you all night long. Well, actually that's a lie. I do want to keep you all night. I have so many more questions for you, but we just, we don't have time. But I do want to know, what are you reading right now? What Uh, are you reading? And I'm going to put it on the uh, Seeing Red book list. We just started from the last episode to this one. We now have a landing page on bookshop.org. And you can see all of the books we're recommending. So if you lose track of a single pod's recommendation, you can go and you can find any of the books that we've recommended. A librarian needs to
1: say something. Yes.
0: Bookshop.com
1: you may not have heard of raises money for independent booksellers around the country and, and also a teeny tiny bit for seeing red but the point is that you can help keep independent booksellers in business and they can compete a little bit against the big guys so
3: right well
1: are you reading paul
3: well and i'll i'll answer that but just on that note you're probably familiar with your the advanced book exchange.com a books.com this is a, a network of independent bookstores that sells via that vehicle, so and I use use them a lot. Unlike you, April, I'm not a librarian, so I just go and buy books, and that's probably <laughs> yeah. going to doing your part hinder the retirement picture for my wife and I. Um,
0: um, for our listeners who cannot see Paul on the Zoom camera, he is sitting in a gorgeous wooden library that you would see. In, like, a movie of a mm-hmm. fancy house. And mm-hmm. it is such a fancy library. It has a ladder, an a actual ladder. library ladder. It is so With just. A real. Rate, With a rail. With a rail. Mark your calendars. The weekend after it is safe to do so, we are gonna have a Seeing Red retreat. You're all invited, <laughs> and we're just gonna <laughs> hang out in Paul's library. <laughs> That'll keep us busy. That
3: yeah. would be fun. That would be fun. Well, to spe- specifically answer the question about the book that I'm reading right at this moment, it's a novel. It was written by a man by the name of J. J. Hyatt Downing, who uh, was a fairly accomplished novelist. His biggest uh, book, um, biggest seller was the novel Sioux City which was supposed to become a Broadway, or I, I mean a movie. It was, it was going to become a movie of, in Hollywood, uh, but something happened, at, toward, and it, it just never got off the ground. But he was born in Haywarden, Iowa, just on the... I,
2: just, I lived there.
3: Did you live uh, in Haywarden? I did. Oh, my goodness. It's interesting. What's the book called? The book is called The Harvest is Late, and uh, it's, it's a wonderful novel. It's actually set in Southeast uh, South Dakota in a small town. Like I said, he grew up in Hayward. And, and there was actually uh, another... And this is a very strange situation because Haywarden is not a large town. It's a stone's throw, really, from the state of Nebraska. Mm -hmm. But uh, Ruth Succo is uh, uh, an Iowa author, novelist, very successful. In fact, she's sometimes called the Willa Cather of Iowa. But she was born in in Haywarden as well. And later on, these two novelists had some correspondence over their earlier days. So I, I want to get to Iowa City at some point in time to to kind of go through that, but I'm writing a, a paper on unheralded novelists in uh, what's called Siouxland, uh, which is basically south, Southeast South Dakota, Northeast Nebraska, uh, Northwest Iowa, and Southwest Minnesota. And it, the book will be coming out next year. And it's, uh, so I'm reading this novel, this Jay Hyatt Downing novel, The Harvest is Late, as a part of that project. I'm working my way through a half a dozen novelists that were really quite accomplished, but books are now uh, long out of print. And that's, that was a really important project for me uh, at one point in time, was to try to get people reading these novels that were really, really good, but because of our sort of urban preferences in the 20th century, you know, our fascination with Hemingway and Fitzgerald and, and these, these, these types of authors, a lot of good rural work fell through the cracks and as an example i mean nobody thinks about uh, faulkner as somebody who threw fell through the cracks but the fact is that he was basically forgotten all of his work was out of print in this country and he was only rediscovered when people found out that people in europe were reading him right and left and then slowly americans began to embrace Faulkner so there's a lot of really good work out there that ends up out of print that doesn't deserve to be out of print and so that has been uh, kind of a, a, a real interest of mine so at any rate I'm reading the harvest is late by Jay Hyatt, Hyatt Downing right now I can in fact
0: I can
1: He's pulling it off his shelf right
0: now. <laughs> <laughs> his fancy, his fancy Something. library. No, book we pulled the and other book
3: off. People, everybody else can't uh, see it, but this is the the novel Sioux City. I think the the harvest is laid it up by, on my bedstand stand upstairs. But um, this is another one that he did and and was his most popular, best selling novel at any rate.
2: So this um, is this is about things that are close to us, places that we know of, and we yes, we absolutely. can go or we've been. Easily,
3: right. Pretty and, neat, and, and elevating cool. some uh, uh, Nebraska novelists too that did good work. But unlike Willa Cather, uh, you know, or or Mari Sandoz, they they just didn't crack the feeling I mean, they didn't make it into the canon, but they produced really good work. Work that's worth reading. So,
0: well, Paul, we're going to ask you to give us a list. We're gonna make us. I want to make a special book list on our book page of authors in nebraska that you think are unsung that we should sing
3: yeah yay I'd, be, I'd love to do that that would be great
0: so i think that would be incredible uh i'm a huge reader i know april's a big reader stephanie you're a reader uh and i'm assuming all of our listeners are readers and if you're not find a book check it out this summer the right. summer's a good time tris set your goal try to get through one book you. this summer
1: <laughs> we we'll help you find like book <laughs> I connect people with the right book.
2: It's my super oh, good service for the world, April. Although
1: if you like fantasy,
2: it's a lot harder for me. <laughs> mm. <laughs> I'm sure Paul could help us with that. We could.
0: Okay.
2: We're on whatever. it. We're on
0: it. Well, everyone, enjoy your week. I am looking forward to our next recording. Somebody has pointed out we are now, uh, we have more Published podcasts in the new season in 2020 than we ever did in 2019. Woo! So we're yeah. gonna keep going. As a reminder, you know people can support our work through Patreon. Support our work by reading cool books, send us emails, send us love notes. We love you. Yeah. And thank you so much for coming, Paul. Thanks, Paul.
3: We bet. Thank you,
2: Paul NDP, first associate chair 2020. Just
3: That's my right. endorsement Thank you. Thank you very much.
2: You've
1: been listening to Seeing Red Nebraska Politics from the Left. Seeing Red is a group blog edited by citizen volunteers and entirely devoted to Nebraska politics. You can support us on Patreon with a $5, $10, or $20 a month donation. Be sure to check us out at seeingrednebraska.com and on Facebook and Instagram. You can also follow us on Twitter at seeingredne or contact us via email at seeingredne at protonmail.com.